Brady Farkas show on a hump day, Wednesday that is. Jack Maine filling in for Brady as he continues his luxurious vacation, taking time off before football season starts. It's a work day for the rest of us, and it's a work day for the Boston Red Sox and the crew over at WEEI. It's Will Fleming. He joins us now on the phone line. Will, it's such an honor to have you on the show, man. Thanks for being here. Jack, always a pleasure, man. And uh, I, you know, I gotta say, I kind of wish I were on the beach or wherever Brady is, gallivanting across the world. But uh, I'd rather be on the phone with you and uh, talk about a team that, you know, has a lot of big things on its plate going forward. And uh, obviously, all of Red Sox Nation is a little bit uneasy right now. But I, I think uh, our conversation can bring to light some, some reasons that people can take a deep breath. I hope and uh, power to the postseason. Well, as as a diehard Red Sox fan and a lifelong listener of WEEI, I would much rather be talking to you. So let's just jump right into it. I am sick and tired of Matt Barnes taking the ball in the ninth inning. Guy can't seem to get an out last night. Home run to Josh Donaldson and then back-to-back walks. You guys were on the broadcast last night. Alex Cora went out to the mound after he gave up that first walk. And he said, and, and it sounded like Alex was fairly aggressive and fairly animated on the mound with with Matt. I, I just kind of want to know, like, what are you guys seeing from Matt Barnes that has just made him be such an ineffective reliever this past month? Well, first of all, I think we all have to just step back for a second and say how jarring it is that he has struggled so much because till the middle of July, he was, you could make an argument, the best, most dominant, most effective reliever in baseball. And really since that time, and especially now in August, I think he's got an ERA just south of 17. Uh, and it's just been really alarming. And Alex Spear wrote a great story about it in the Boston Globe today. And in August, Matt has thrown 15 four-seam fastballs that have been put into play, and eight of them have been hits. Three have been home runs, and another three have been doubles. So it's mainly the fastball, Jack, where it used to be a totally dominant pitch. And it was it was eye-opening to watch him, the reinvented Matt Barnes at the beginning of this year. The analytics department just hammered him to pound the strike zone and really lean on his fastball. And he did a lot of that. It was a great pitch for him. He got so many swings and misses. Now, unfortunately, the four-seamer is a totally ineffective pitch for him. And he talked about it last night. He's searching for answers. I mean, sometimes it cuts. Sometimes it sinks. Sometimes it's flat. And it just does not act the way that it did. Now, I think we have to be a little bit fair and say that, you know, Matt, for the last now six years, has been a total workhorse. And the averages, I think he's either had 70 or 62 outings in alternating years. So let's just split the difference and say he's averaged 66 outings for six seasons in a row. Throw in the weird shortened COVID year. And I'm not convinced that, you know, a lot of these guys have not hit a wall. And when you think about it, the rotation did not give length at all in the early part of the season. And I think that has now had major trickle-down effects, not just on Barnes, but on all the big key pieces in the bullpen. So, you know, the answer to your question, to come back to it, is the fastball has been the big difference. He has not attacked hitters. He's kind of back to... The guy that was frustrating at the end of last year was nibbling a little bit, a lot more curveballs, not as aggressive in the zone. Uh, there's no question. It's a problem that they've got to solve. He's, he's, he's pretty honest about it. I mean, one thing about Matt, he will stand there. He will be, you know, accountable. He's going to work very hard to rediscover it. And I think you and I can both admit that 
if the Red Sox are going to do what they want to do this year. He's not alone in this, but if they're going to do some big things, he's got to you know find it once again. I love following Lou Merloni on Twitter because the guy always <laughs> offers up suggestions as to how to fix the situation. And one of them that I saw recently was throw Hauk into Whitlock's position and throw Whitlock into the closer's role. Do you think that that's too much of an ask for a rookie to be the team's everyday closer going into a deep postseason push? Uh, I'll answer that in two parts. First of all, I talked to Lou about that this morning, and he's sort of he's sort of retracting that idea with, with for one main reason, and that is I think we can all understand that Garrett Whitlock in his current role is so valuable, and in a way. You could argue. Now, this seems counterintuitive, although the, the analytics guys would agree with what I'm about to say. And that is, I mean, the last three outs of a, of a nine-inning game are the hardest to get. And yet, a lot of times in the seventh or eighth inning, there are bigger spots. And again, we go back to the rotation, and as it's currently constituted, you've got Chris Sale, who is still being stretched out. You know, you've got guys who are not really going deep in the game. And so I think there may be an argument that, there are going to be more spots like the other night where you end up going into extra innings where you need Garrett to be able to get you more than even three outs. And I think they've kind of groomed him to be in that position. Uh, so I, I think there will be a real temptation to leave him where he is because he's been so effective and so dominant as he is. Now, to your question, do I think it's too much for him? I really don't. I mean, I don't think there's a whole lot of evidence. Everybody went crazy about this the close-up at Yankee Stadium of his hand trembling oh, on the mound. God. I mean, do we do we have other close-ups of his hands when he's on the mound? Have they ever shown that shot before? Are we sure that that's just not his adrenaline and that's not what he does all the time? I thought way too much was made about that. And by the way, if you're a rookie, you're allowed to have one bad outing. The guy has been the best rookie pitcher in baseball, end of story, full stop. So I'll take that every single time, whether or not he has a finger twitch at Yankee Stadium or not, but I, I think what, what I loved, Jack, the other day, after you know getting out of that second and third jam, was he just stormed off the mound and just started shaking his head up and down. Almost oh, like he had swagger that time. He had swagger that he time. He did. He did, and that's something we have not seen from him. And I do think that that is the kind of moment. Listen, we understand it's the it's the Texas Rangers. It's not the New York Yankees. It's not the Houston Astros. Uh, but but. That's the kind of thing that makes you think even more than we already do, that there's something special in there and that maybe if they, even if they don't do it this year, that the big, big things are, are awaiting him in the future. This is Will Fleming of WEEI. You're going to hear his voice on the Red Sox radio network in about an hour or so when they pirate our signal. We're coming down to the home stretch of the season. September baseball, it's the most riveting baseball, but we're focused on October and a one-game playoff potentially with the rival New York Yankees. Is that? Tell me right now if that's going to be probably the greatest game in the history of, of professional baseball and baseball network television, a one-game playoff between <laughs> rivals like that. I mean, I... You can be pretty sure that the executives across America, uh, I don't know who has that AL wildcard game, whether it's Fox or PBS, or whomever has that game, they are praying on hand and knee every single night that it's the Red Sox and the Yankees, because you can imagine uh, that would draw, draw an enormous number. It would be incredibly uh, intense uh, and meaningful. 
you know, I, I think what's crazy is everyone seems to think that the division race is over. And, I mean, I, it's tempting to think that because Tampa Bay is just a, a juggernaut in, in their own weird, eccentric, different way. Uh, you just have to give them credit. They have an unbelievable ability to visit the mound 8 million times a game and win every night. It, it is just breathtaking what they do. But I'm still not convinced that this thing is over. The Red Sox have a couple series left with the Rays. The Yankees play them one more time in the last weekend of the season. I don't think the Rays are uncatchable. But even if we accept that as a premise, let's say the Rays win the American League East Division, then it's not just a two-team race for the wild cards. I don't think the Athletics are done, even though Chris Bassett is down with the line drive to the face. I don't think the Mariners are yet out of it. They've gotten a couple big wins against the Athletics here the last couple nights. But I do think that of those four teams, the Red Sox and the Yankees are the best teams. I still, now, this will drive people in New York totally crazy, and J.D. needs to be better. Xander needs to be better. Devers has looked better. But those three guys need to hit more consistently. The Red Sox, to me, are still a better team than the New York Yankees. Now, the Yankees have got an unbelievable mojo. They really have rolled after the trade deadline. But I think you just stack the rosters up next to each other. I still would take the Red Sox 26 over the Yankees 26, especially as Chapman struggles and all these things are going wrong with the Yankees, even as they've won 11 games in a row. And one last thing I'll say about that, Jack. Yeah. If indeed that's the case, I think it is so important to host that game. And I, I, I just think that, you know, having the last crack at the plate and having your crowd and your, you know, creature comforts in your ballpark. Listen, the New York Yankee Stadium ain't the house of Roosevelt. It is not the same loud, intimidating, ghost-filled place that the old one was for the Yankees, for the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. But I, you want to be at Fenway Park. So it's really important to stay close with the Yankees, have that series in late September, really kind of have home field on the line. I fully expect that it will. Well, it certainly is going to be entertaining down the stretch. Will, I got a couple more for you before we let you go. I am an aspiring broadcaster. I'm a senior in college. I've grown up listening to WEI, Joe Castiglione, Dave O'Brien, Tim Neverett, and now you and Sean and the rest of the guys. I just got to know, you know, uh, a daily routine during a, a long homestand like this. And, and, and last night, the, the game was a marathon. You guys probably didn't get out of the studio until close to 1130. I mean, what is a day like for Will Fleming and the rest of the WEI crew on a on a on a hot summer night like this? Well, Jack, it has changed a little bit over the last couple of years because of COVID. Um, ordinarily, we, we would be there very early and be in the clubhouse and in the dugouts and talking to guys. Uh, that was not at all possible last year. And just as of about six weeks ago, we were allowed down on the field to you know be around the sort of the warning track area around batting practice. And that is really the only opportunity we have to interact with these players other than, you know, the Zoom meetings where they're talking to 15 writers and it's just not the same thing. I mean, the the job of a play-by-play broadcaster for a team like the Red Sox or anybody in big league baseball is to tell the listener and the fan things that they can't read on the Internet or in any newspaper that gets delivered to their front door. And the best way to do that is to go down and talk to players. Now, we have that opportunity, but it is still harder to interact with and talk to guys, players, coaches, staff members, all of that. You get lucky sometimes, uh, but you kind of have to intercept them going back into the clubhouse. And Anyway, a lot of that is inside baseball stuff. Maybe your listeners don't care about. But oh, I care about it. Don't I worry. 
the reason I bring all that up is that I still go. You know, I get there around 4 o'clock, catch the last half of batting practice, try to talk to as many guys on the field as I can. Uh, and then, you know, you're, you're just you're, you're getting ready for the game. I'm talking to Joe or Sean or whomever's in there with me that night. Um, and we're just chatting baseball and trying to get ready and, and do our thing. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a nonstop um, effort kind of uh, from February until late October, hopefully. And so by this time of the season, uh, you know, we haven't seen the Twins in a good long while. So I talked to some Twins broadcasters yesterday in the afternoon. Dan Gladden and I had a nice chat and texting with Corey Probus. And so you get sort of the inside story about what's going on with the Minnesota Twins. But as it relates to the Red Sox and our ball club, um, if I don't know what's going on with us after 127 or eight games or wherever it is that the Red Sox have played, uh, we probably have bigger problems. And so from a from a Red Sox angle, um, my philosophy has never been to overstat, to feed the listeners too many numbers, to really, frankly, do too much in the way of biography, really. I mean, I, I think you probably very rarely hear me say, you know, Hunter Renfro went to Mississippi State. I mean, first of all, I think anybody who knows the Red Sox knows that stuff. But secondly, uh, I just... I think it's somewhat repetitive and not that interesting. That's just my personal philosophy on it, and, and other people would, would disagree with me. But but that is a, ra- a way of saying that, you know, I'm, I'm reading all day. I'm listening to radio shows and podcasts and talking to people during the day in, the, in a way that sort of you just absorb as much stuff as you possibly can. So that by the time I get to the ballpark most days, you know, I do a pregame hit with whomever is hosting our pregame show about 40 minutes before we go on the air for a broadcast. But, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot goes on at 7 o'clock, and uh, last night we got out of there at 12.15. So, oh, jeez. Uh, never complain about it one second. I mean, sitting in that booth is the greatest honor of my life, uh, and it's one that I hope I get to, to have for decades to come. And uh, I will never complain about the long days at the office. And uh, like I said, it is it is the privilege of my entire life to be able to sit in that broadcast booth at Fenway Park. Well, it is certainly a dream of mine at some point in my future as well. And, Will, I hope that you are sitting in that booth for quite some time. I would be remiss not to mention that these are the two busiest days of the year for WEEI as they are running the Ness and WEEI Jimmy Fund Radio Telethon. I don't have an exact number as to how much you guys have raised up to the minute, but I know last night as you guys were wrapping up the pregame show, you were right around 850000 Ish? Yeah, so at the last check, I think it was like $1.5 million. Oh, uh, brilliant. Hopefully we can, yeah, it's just an amazing, remarkable thing. And hopefully we can get north of $3 million, north, north of $4 million. I mean, I hope people pick up the phones and text uh, all night long, and, and you can find the, the information online about the Jimmy Fund and, and how to donate and how to contribute, because, Jack, I can tell you, you know, obviously um, it is it is a treat and an honor to, to broadcast the Red Sox games on the radio just because of the actual work and the games and, and, and broadcasting the, the Boston Red Sox in a pennant race is incredible. However, I did not know how special the Jimmy Fund was until I got here three years ago. And when you meet some of these kids and you learn their stories and the adults who are in Dana-Farber as well, the tremendous strength and courage that they undertake and the more than that just the remarkable work that goes on at the jimmy fund with all of the doctors and staff and lisa sherber the fact that they make every patient that uh, comes through those doors feel like they're the number one most important patient on the entire planet 
Uh, it sure is, Jack. It's actually pretty well-timed because we're all so consumed with every pitch and every out-of-town score and worried about why the Red Sox are making errors on the infield and all these things. And then you meet a, a couple of parents who lost their daughter on Christmas Eve to a brain tumor at the age of nine months old. And you say to yourself, well, maybe Bobby Dahlbeck dropping a, a throw from Xander in the fifth inning of a Saturday game is not that big of a deal. And listen, you guys who listen to me know that I take it seriously and I live and die by these games and I want the Red Sox to do well. But I do think it's an important reminder uh, that there are bigger, more important things going on in the world than, than this game of baseball. We love it. We're invested in it. But but uh, I sure hope that people will go online, pick up their phones, make a donation, because I can tell you firsthand, having seen these patients, having talked to the doctors, this money makes a real tangible impact on the lives of people, on the research that is done, and on the outcomes of the people who walk through the doors of that clinic. So uh, I really hope that people will, will do their part if they can. Will Fleming, WEEI, he is one of the many voices, one of the, one of the standout voices that bring you Red Sox baseball all summer long. Will, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for making one of my personal dreams come true and, and giving our listeners a great inside scoop on their Boston Red Sox. Jack, always a pleasure. You can call me anytime.